The other is like the debt yield, the debt service coverage ratio. Those kinds of things are important. The loan to value, loan to cost, et cetera. Those metrics are important to the lender. I cannot pay a high price because even though I'd like to, or and you know, maybe I could finagle the numbers somehow in my underwriting, the lender's gonna say, hey, your debt yield stinks. I can't, we're not gonna do this deal. Your debt coverage ratio isn't there based upon their actual net operating income as they're operating it right now. It doesn't cover the way we need to. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is Chris Bennett from PassiveInvesting.com. And today we're learning about his shift from multifamily investing to self-storage investing a few years back, why he and his partners at the time made that shift, lessons that he learned along the way, his thoughts about the state of the market today in self-storage, where the opportunity is, where the opportunity may be in the future, how the changing economy and changing interest rates may impact the self-storage market and the opportunity there, at least over the next six to 12 months or so, maybe a little shorter time span. Outside of that, it gets very difficult to predict. But what we see, what he sees coming down the road and so much more. So if you're interested in self-storage investing, you want to make that shift, or maybe you've already made that shift and you're looking for new knowledge, new ideas to take you to the next level, to push you forward and help you find that next deal, this is the interview to listen to. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor and I help busy people passively invest in commercial real estate, specifically multifamily and self-storage properties. If you'd like to learn more about what I do, like to learn more about passively investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, schedule a call with me, and I'll look forward to speaking with you soon. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so, so, so much. And I say it every time. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you are engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Help them escape the Wall Street casino as well. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. I want to thank you for tuning in. I think you're going to learn a lot from Chris Bennett from PassiveInvesting.com today. Without any further ado, here we go. Chris, thank you for joining us today. Taylor, happy to be here, man. Well, we've been talking jujitsu for about a half an hour now, but we, we had did. to get around to uh, talking <laughs> real estate. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and your background, can you tell us about what you do, what you invest in, where you're calling from, all that great yeah, stuff? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. So I'm based out of Charlotte, North Carolina. I focus on self-storage acquisitions for PassiveInvesting.com. I'm one of the uh, co-managing partners of the self-storage arm of PassiveInvesting.com. Uh, my other partner is John Allen. We both live in Charlotte with our families. Prior to doing this, I was actually out on my own. John and I actually were partners. Uh, we'll come back to that later on in the, in the episode, but he and I were partners looking for storage deals ourselves. And then uh, before that, I worked for a company called 10 Federal, based out of Raleigh, North Carolina. I uh, was doing multifamily acquisitions, and then we pivoted to storage. And that's where I learned about the asset class and was able to say, hey, I really like storage, and this is where I want to be. Uh, focusing my time and attention. Uh, before that, I was at UNC Chapel Hill, so go Heels. I'm glad we beat Duke twice last year. If anybody is a basketball, college basketball <laughs> fan out there, uh, go Heels. So anyway, uh, was there. Uh, uh, while I was there, I was actually on the real estate and the business school. They have real estate private equity fund. 
And that's where I first really learned, got hands-on. I was on the fund as a fund manager, got hands-on with real estate and managing capital and investing it and all that as a student uh, student fund manager. Uh, and it was real. It wasn't like a, a you know monopoly money. We had real LPs uh, and we were the real GPs and we were looking at all kinds of deals. Uh, so it was a fascinating environment to be in. A uh, very unique program. Very proud of being part of that. Uh, and before that, got my license in 2007, my real estate license. So I was around. I know this episode is being recorded right now in, what month is this? Uh, July 2022. Uh, and we'll talk about the market and all that. But I was around back in 08, 09 during the Great Recession. Had just got my license, was going to make a ton of money. Our real estate license class was like packed with people. We're all going to go out there and crush it. And then the Great Recession hit. And so that was uh, that was a really tough time. Learned a few lessons there. So so that's a general nutshell. And then jujitsu, I just started that about five months ago. So I'm a jujitsu fanatic uh, now learning all that. Got my ear busted up the other day. So I'm proud of that. Uh, but anyway, uh, so that's, that's the whole story, <laughs> story in a nutshell. Awesome. I love it. And like I said, we could talk about jujitsu, but uh, we're going to yeah. talk real estate here. So yeah. I'd like to dig into... Uh, first, I'll make a comment that before I started investing in real estate, I thought maybe my path would be getting an MBA. And UNC is one of the programs that I very seriously considered nice. specifically because they have uh, a real estate program. But hey, I decided not to do that. and not. No regrets about the path yeah, that I chose. There you go. Yep. But for I'd like to dig into... Lisa, your previous company's shift from multifamily to self-storage, the reasons for that, maybe the timing, I think is probably going to be relevant. It was a little while ago now, but uh, markets have changed. But the circumstances, why you know they made that decision? Sure. Yeah. So there was the company was called 10 Federal. Anybody can look them up. They still do multifamily, just to clarify. So I started as the director of acquisition. So it's a fancy title. I call it the fancy title for bird dog. Go out there and find <laughs> deals. Really, if you're a director of acquisitions, that's what you're doing. You're finding deals and making offers. Uh, it's a fancy title, but that's what you're doing. So I called and talked to every broker who does multifamily. We were focused on the Carolinas, uh, primarily North Carolina. We we're based out of Raleigh at the time. So I called and talked to every broker about every deal possible. Uh, between basically Charlotte and Wilmington, North Carolina. And we got two under contract. They both fell out for various reasons, but it was, it was just tough to make the numbers work. And that's been the case ever since, actually, to be honest with you. But uh, the strategy we had was a light value add, and it just didn't make sense with the returns that we needed to get and achieve for our investors. Um, and so it was kind of like, that's one big lesson that I learned is that your investors and their expectations uh, need to match your strategy and what you're trying to accomplish and the types of deals that you're looking at. Uh, if there's a mismatch there, you're probably it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, to do any deals together uh, because the expectations are different for the two of you. But anyway, um, so we looked at store, the guys I worked for, uh, great guys, Cliff and Brad, they were brothers. They, own, they were building, they own, I'm sorry, I think it was three small facilities, at three or four, and they were developing another smaller one using SBA loans from the SBA. And they said, hey, I, I said, I set up a meeting. I'll make a long story short here. I set up a meeting to try and raise capital for our apartments. Brad was telling them about the storage that they were doing, uh, the small stuff and how they were doing it. They, the, these guys became very interested in that. After the meeting, I was like, hey, man, whatever we do, everybody gets excited about storage. Let's take a look at that. So they said, okay, great. Let's go ahead and do that. We decided to raise a fund. We put it on CrowdStreet to raise capital for us. And we went out there to buy storage. And I had to learn storage, basically. I mean, we had some reporting and management and whatnot that we did in-house, but uh, I had to learn about the industry as a whole uh, from the ground up. So I went basically like really deep dive into Google and searching everything I could possibly find out about self-storage, went to a few conferences, et cetera, uh, and then found success there. So that's really what it was. And it wasn't that one was better than the other, but as I looked at them, I realized, hey, I like storage for a couple of different reasons. One is there's an opportunity to consolidate within that market 
A lot of uh, mom and pop owners who own maybe one or two facilities and that's it. Uh, a lot more private owners versus multifamily. We have a lot more uh, maybe REITs or PE groups, private equity groups that are very sophisticated, et cetera. Um, so there's just opportunity in storage. And I like the fact that you're just dealing with people's stuff and not actually people. You do deal with customers, of course. That's you know no doubt about that. But if somebody you know can't pay the rent, I don't feel bad. And I going back to the recession days of 08, 09, I actually did like evictions. I, w- I showed up with a sheriff's deputy and changed locks on doors. Uh, I was listing properties for asset managers and banks, foreclosed properties. It was a bad time. Uh, and so that was my experience in real estate up to that point. And I like storage because I'm just dealing with stuff. Hey, you don't pay. I just auction your stuff, right? It's not a sob story in that sense. You don't feel bad as a quote unquote landlord. So anyway, that was some of the reasons there. One thing, Taylor, that I don't do, and I'm talking a little long here, is I will never say that one thing is better than the other. A lot of people will go out and because they're trying to raise capital, they're because they're trying to do, you know, whatever it is, get interest or maybe be controversial or whatever, which is completely fine. That's just not the way I do things. Uh, So I love storage for different reasons. You can be successful multifamily. You can be successful with cell towers and whatever it is you want, crypto, whatever it is you want to do, you can be successful at it, right? If you stay at it long enough. So that's how I see things uh, in my my viewpoint. Nice. I love that. And uh, I mean, I agree. I invest, I do deals in both multifamily and self-storage. So yeah. I'm not, yeah. you know, I'm not saying one's better than the other, but they certainly do have different dynamics. So Absolutely. you mentioned learning self-storage, you know, from the ground up years ago. I imagine that was difficult. Can you walk us through, <laughs> especially some of those early lessons or, or shifts or heck, I'll, I'll say it, mistakes. And we all make mistakes oh, yeah. and you know yeah. that's how we learn sometimes. So yeah, yeah, stop. definitely. Uh, so the way I went about, I Googled, you know, self-storage investing, whatever I found, like if you, anybody else did that, you'd find like Scott Myers, who does coaching mm-hmm. and mentoring. Uh, you would find Mark Helm. Uh, and those were really, I can't remember, there might've been one other, but I can't remember off the top of my head. But at the time, this is 2016, 2017. Those are the main two guys out there that I at least found online uh, that were talking about how to invest and buy, excuse me, self-storage. And so I bought Mark Helm's book, Creating Wealth Through Self-Storage, read all through that. There is a self-storage almanac that is sold by Minico Publishing. I bought that. It's pretty expensive, like almost $200 for that. But it's a book that tells you basically everything about the self-storage industry. And I don't know if there's anything else like that for any other asset class. And so every year, the almanac comes out, the self-storage almanac comes out, then it tells you all the data that you want to know about self-storage management and investment and you know cap rates and expenses and whatever else, development, et cetera, uh, all in one book. Uh, and so I found that that information was consolidated and I could read through and understand the industry better. Um, and then I realized, hey, you know what? There's data. Uh, Yardy Matrix has data where you can go out and you can buy ownership, or excuse me, data for different markets and it provides the ownership uh, contact information there. So I would literally make phone calls and we would find these mom and pops. We were targeting facilities that were like maybe 30,000 square feet or less, which is small in self-storage. In multifit, maybe that's like 300 units at three three fifty max, uh, which is a lot in multifamily. That's a huge deal. That's mm-hmm. over $10 million deal in multifamily for the most part. Uh, in storage, that's maybe like a one to $3 million deal. It's a small deal. And so that's what we were targeting. And we would take them from mom and pop kind of operations or management to our management platform at the time, which was fully, uh, quote unquote, unmanned or automated. Uh, We know it now after the pandemic is contactless. That's kind of the buzzword out there. So if I say contactless, oh, okay. So that means I don't talk to anybody, I don't hand anyone paper or anything like that. Yeah. That's what we were doing back then, you know, five years, four or five years ago. Uh, So it was a little bit different back then, but that's what we were doing. I learned a couple of things. One is mom and pops don't keep great records. 
uh, I would show up. <laughs> I would show up to do the audits and just do the due diligence. And uh, man, there'd be like stacks of the leases that to go through. There no, nothing was online. The first deal I ever closed, the owner, her husband had passed away. They built it from the ground up. She had passed away. So the husband was managing it. She managed it like 20 years earlier and hadn't done anything with it since. So she had no idea what was going on. She had no idea who was renting. We had 40, she had about, I think it was about 40, 30 or 40 units that were full stuff, but she had no idea who was renting those units and they weren't paying. Um, And so when we took it over and closed 60 days later, I think she had gotten 10 of those emptied out. The rest were still needing to be emptied out. So I learned another thing that there's a lot of opportunity with mom and pop. So once we cleaned all those units out, did some marketing, some very basic marketing, spruced up the facility, uh, I think we got it to uh, stabilize within 60 days uh, from closing, which is ridiculous. So the market had demand, plenty of demand, no issues there. It's just mismanagement. And that happens, I wouldn't say to that extent, uh, but because the mom and pops sometimes keep bad records, do everything by paper. Another lady, I went uh, to close that one in uh, due, due diligence. She's like, oh, I just bought this computer. What should I do with it now? She literally just never had a computer there. Uh, and she said, I got it about six months ago. Her her entire like rent roll and the payments and all that were on ledger cards that were kept in a fireproof file cabinet in the office. <laughs> like literally, she like handed me a stack. <clears throat> so, you know, like, hey, that's okay. So we took it and took over and obviously ran a lot better uh, than that. But yeah, there's there's a lot to be said about the opportunity with mom and pops, et cetera, because they do things that way uh, where you can come in and improve things with technology, et cetera. So one of the things I wonder about is, is I agree with that, that there is that opportunity in the market with the mom and pops. And that is kind of a, I don't want to say buzz phrase, but in, in the self-storage yeah, industry, well, it is. it's it something is. that we talk about is, hey, there's yeah. mom and pops, there's this opportunity. But even though we want to have, you know, an op- looking for opportunity, a positive mindset and all those kinds of things, there is a, I don't know, an absorption curve or something like that. There isn't mm-hmm. an infinite number of these mom and pops out there. Mm-hmm. And eventually we're going to hit like a saturation point where the, all the mom and pops that really want to sell have sold to more sophisticated owners who are going to use yeah. contactless management and all those kinds of things. Where do you think we stand now on that? Do you have data? Do you have a feel? What do you see as far as that goes? Yeah. In the storage almanac, they show like the, the like a pie chart basically of like who owns what, like mom and pops and REITs and all that kind of stuff. And that section of the pie chart with mom and pop ownership, as far as square footage is concerned, not actual per location, mom and pops tend to own smaller locations and a lot more of them. So mm-hmm. if you look at it per, on a location basis, it's kind of stayed somewhat static. But if you look at it on a per foot basis, because the REITs and whatnot, they own usually larger facilities. As a market share as a whole, the REITs and the private equity groups are are growing. They're 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 taking over their portion, I guess, a larger portion of the square footage of storage in the US. So in other words, it's becoming more, storage is slowly becoming more modern, I guess you'd call it, uh, more sophisticated and professional that they're being managed by these larger groups. So yes, I, I am also of the, uh, I guess, contrarian mindset. Like there is opportunity, but there's only so much of it. Uh, you can think positive thoughts all day, but that doesn't uh, <laughs> change the fact, right? That like uh, people, uh, the abundance, that's what it is, abundance, abundance mentality. Mindset, yeah. I love that. There's no, I'm not going to go around all day long and say, oh, there's no money. There's no this. Like, I get it. You're you're trying to be more positive. Totally on board with that. However, there is a a scarcity, right? I I got my degree in economics. There is not an abundance of facilities (laughs) out there. That's impossible, right? There's not an abundance of land. There's a lot of land, but not all of it's usable, right? So land is a scarce resource. Uh, And that's just one example. So 
the, the opportunity will sw- slowly diminish over time because the information is out there even more. So like when I said, when I started, you basically had Mark Helm and Scott Myers and maybe one other, I can't, I'm not trying to do anybody uh, any uh, disservice. I just can't remember off the top of my head. But uh, now you have a lot more, you know, you got AJ Osborne, you got um, Mike Wagner, you got a, a number of other folks who are, uh, Nick, I forgot his name now, another guy, Nick Huber, I think his name is, he does a, a bunch of videos. and Very active on Twitter. You. Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, yeah. Somebody told me about him. So yeah, so great guys out there who are teaching others to do the same thing uh, and writing books about it and talking more about it and getting on podcasts like this. So the information is getting out there. A thing I learned years ago in economics is that if there is an opportunity to make profit in some in something, whether it be a t-shirt shop or whatever, entrepreneurs will see that opportunity. They will come into that market and they will diminish the the margins will diminish and shrink over time. That is just a fact of life in economics. So if any information is out there about doing something, whatever it might be, like self-storage investing, more people will jump into it. The ability to find deals and opportunities will become less and less and pricing will get uh, will go up and cap rates will get compressed. Over time, the profits will shrink, in other words, because you have more people jumping into that space. And that's what has been happening uh, for the last couple of years. So yeah, while I do believe in a good, positive mental attitude is great, there is a diminishing opportunity within the space, for sure. So we've seen that not just in self-storage, but I think also mobile home parks uh, in mm-hmm. this, so this yep. current market cycle have clearly gotten significantly more popular. If you go talk to some of the old dogs, if you will, they'll tell you how much things have, have really changed yes. in, yep. in mobile home parks. So what do you see as far as like, if you have your crystal ball, which none of us have, but you know, 10 years, 20 years down the road, you know, things are compressing. Where do you think self-storage is going to stand or savvy investors are going to be. It's going to keep getting more compressed, but you know, we still have to make money as investors. So what are yeah, your thoughts? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, there's, there's a floor to it, right? And so at some point, if you're looking at publicly traded markets or REITs or whatever, they still provide a very good return, pay a dividend, et cetera. So if you, at the very low end, if you're talking about sophistication and being uh, compressed, that's going to be as far as you can go, right? As far as the return and risk, mm-hmm. r- the risk return trade-off. Uh, and so, you know, their returns are, are what they are. They're smaller, lower, but they're not going to go to zero, uh, right? They're going to be somewhere in that, whatever, maybe three to 5% range, something like that. But because it's a good risk return trade-off, we might look at private equity groups, uh, large ones out there. Again, I don't know, 10 years, but there'll be more REITs that come more I know there's some of the groups who are thinking about going public, maybe not right now in this economic environment. Right now, July, 2022. <laughs> it's a bad time. The time this is recording, <laughs> yeah. So maybe not right now, but in the future when things are a little bit better, I know there's some groups out there who do want to go public and raise that public capital uh, to go out and do more deals. So I'm sure you'll see more storage companies listed, uh, publicly traded companies listed uh, and become REITs, et cetera. No, no problem there. Uh, more technology within the industry, more sophistication within, within the industry. And to be sure, like the mom and pop locations, they do sell, right? They sell to somebody else who's going to buy them. But then that person over time, maybe they don't want to run it as tightly as they did, you know, 10 years ago or whatever. They're kind of distracted doing other things or whatever the case may be. When they bought it, they painted it. It looks really nice. 10 years later, the paint's fading you know, the doors look kind of faded. So now it's kind of, in a sense, another mom and pop. Those facilities don't usually get torn down and something that's built. They stay. Metal buildings last like forever, basically. Uh, and paint will go a long way from taking a class C to making it look like a class B plus. Never be class A, but like maybe class B, pl- B plus. Uh, we've done it n- numerous times. So paint can do wonders for facilities. So I see them still trading, right? They're still, but being gobbled up more and more, and maybe not as many of those opportunities. If you go larger and you look uh, even at some of the larger ones, maybe 
they're 30, 40, 50,000 square feet and above, oftentimes a developer who is sophisticated in what they do in real estate, they'll build a one-off facility. And maybe they focus on retail uh, and they got a big piece of land, they put a Zaxby's down and then next door, they didn't know what to do with it. So they built storage. And there's one like that that we were looking at recently, actually. Uh, and they built a storage next door, facility next door, managed by public storage, and they want to take it to market and, and sell it uh, because they don't do storage. And in the most strict terms, they would be considered mom and pop even though it's a large professionally managed facility that they own. So there is still opportunity for that and groups like us who are looking for those types of quote unquote mom and pop deals in the market. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So we mentioned you, you kind of alluded to the state of the market and I think we've touched on, you know, interest rates going up and that kind of a thing. And my expectation is with, with inflation, so high at a, you know, 40 year high, or maybe yeah. even longer high, you know, depending on who you ask and where you get your stats and everything, I expect interest rates to continue to rise probably fairly significantly. Mm-hmm. Maybe for the remainder of the year. Beyond that, I'm you know I'm not in business of making predictions, but I'm just looking at what I expect the Fed policy yeah. to be. So, how do you think that will impact the storage business and your ability to acquire deals? Because ultimately, it's making debt a lot more expensive. It yeah. has to be putting upward pressure on cap rates. We've seen that happening to some degree in in some areas but what do you think as far as deal flow for you know the rest of the year going into 2023 yeah so we're in a really interesting time right now as you mentioned with rates etc so july you know 2022 is where we're at recording this right now uh they just came out with the inflation numbers i think it was yesterday or, or something like that everything's kind of blurring together I mean, it was wednesday sure uh but the point is that it was like nine some nine point something percent i think it was uh, and so nine it's, point one, it's, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so it was, it's obviously the highest it's been in 40 something years, like you mentioned. Uh, it's just a really tough time right now for a lot of folks. The one bright spot right now in the economy. So you got, so let me back up for a quick second. So you got inflation going on. You got the war in Ukraine with Russia and Ukraine uh, happening, putting pressure on commodities prices, right? You've got some supply chain issues. Uh, China, they have a zero COVID policy over there. So they're Crazy. shutting things down. Uh, if there's a, even a hint of COVID, uh, they're shutting down their cities or, or, parts of their population, whatever. So that's affecting the supply chain, uh, the flow of supply chain stuff there. And then uh, here in the US, obviously inflation is bad and bad around the world as a result of all these things. So you got the Fed who's trying to fight inflation and they came out, Jerome Powell came out last week, I think it was. And he said, look, we whether if it's inflation versus recession, we're going to try and fight inflation right now and focus on that versus worrying about sending the U.S. into a recession. And so they made it, made it very clear what their policy is. Uh, and then you can look at their forward, in a sense, that's called the dot plot. Uh, people can look that up, just Google like Fed dot plot. Uh, and it will show like all of the 18 members of the Fed where they think rates are going in the future. And they update that dot plot every so often. And right now, the way it looks, it's hard to say, right? But it's always like, hey, right now, everything, if everything holds constant. In other words, if there's no changes, that is the way we see it right now, as of today, rates will be higher, probably closer to three and a half ish, three percent by the end of this year, uh, is where they're thinking. And then staying about the same as where they are right now, maybe going down a little bit in 2023, and then maybe back to normal in 2024. That's if there are no other economic shocks in the economy, which that never happens, right? There's always something that happens every year. So, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, so, so as of this, that, you know, moment, so take that with a grain of salt. Don't use that to predict anything in the future. But the point is the way you can at least see their mindset 
the way that they're thinking. Uh, the federal funds rate is likely going to be around the threes. Uh, could be higher based on these newer, uh, latest inflation numbers. Uh, and so what that means is rates will end up going up by the end of the year. And I think that's pretty, we're not, you know, wizards here, but that's a pretty safe bet, I think. Uh, that rates will definitely be higher. So what are we seeing as a result of all that in the market? Uh, well, we're, we're seeing that over and over again. A deal just came out last night uh, that we had bid on and underwrote back and made an offer on back in April. Now it's with a new broker and they're taking a million dollars off the purchase price, uh, which is a lot, mm-hmm. but it probably, to be honest, with you, it's probably not enough because like you said, uh, interest rates going up puts pressure on cap rates to go up because we can't pay that price. And oftentimes, sometimes, I mean, brokers won't really think this through, but you know, as as we're raising capital and trying to buy a deal, if you're trying to buy your house, right? You have your down payment and you have your lender. Your lender is your silent partner in every single deal unless you pay cash for it, right? The lender is a silent partner. Well, the lender just doesn't give you money, right? They have all these checks that they got to go through your, your right. you know, right? You'd hope oh, yeah. they would, but they don't, right? Your credit check, all that kind of stuff. Your well, job is well, Lenders just giving out money is what got us in trouble, you know, 15 years ago. Oh, yeah, right. I could talk about that. But so... The same thing, right? Buying storage or commercial real estate, the lender has some checks that they're looking at. One is the operator, the management, all that kind of stuff. The other is like the debt yield, the debt service coverage ratio. Those kinds of things are important. The loan to value, loan to cost, et cetera. Those metrics are important to the lender. I cannot pay a high price because even though I'd like to, or and you know, maybe I could finagle the numbers somehow in my underwriting, the lender's going to say, hey, your debt yield stinks. I can't we're not going to do this deal. Your debt coverage ratio isn't there based upon their actual net operating income as they're operating it right now. It doesn't cover the way we need to. If anybody's confused about those metrics, just take a look at them. Debt service coverage ratio, debt yield, loan to cost or loan to value. Take a look at those metrics. But the point is, is that, hey, lenders, I was talking to a broker yesterday. He's like, hey, we need this number, blah, blah. I would gladly pay that, but I can't get a lender to give me money at that price. It's not possible. So, you know, this just makes no sense. And so, we're seeing deals come back to market, come back to us, uh, whether it be off market or otherwise, saying, hey, uh, you know, the, they're willing to come down X number of dollars. Can you make the deal work? And we're still saying, no, we can't uh, because it's not enough. So really, it's, it's, a, it's shifting to a buyer's market. Right now, it was a seller's market for quite a while. Now it's shifting. Things are shifting to a buyer's market uh, and sellers have to come to that realization that, hey, I got to come down on my pricing or just hold on to my deal. So my guess is deal flow is going to pick up in the near term, which we have seen that. I think it's probably going to drop off maybe in the next three to six months because those folks who don't have to sell right now, they can just wait it out another three or four or five years or whatever uh, and just hold on to the deal and hopefully things will be better in the future and they can sell at a price that they want to get. Uh, Whereas other folks are going to say, hey, we got to sell. We got to take it to market no matter what. And that's just what we're going to do. And they're going to, you know, enough to take whatever pricing is available based upon interest rates. So that's kind of the way I see it and what's affecting. So deal flow will be affected. I think pricing is already being affected uh, and it's probably going to continue for the next six to 12 months is my guess because the inflation doesn't get fixed historically. I'm not an expert, but historically, uh, at least in the 80s and whatnot, they raised rates right under Volcker. They raised rates like crazy, caused a recession, but it wasn't like it went down to three. Uh, as far as inflation is concerned, it took years for it to come back down mm-hmm. to somewhat normal levels. And so I don't know how long that's going to take, but the Fed has said, hey, we're going to do everything we can to fight it. So that's where I see things. What are your thoughts on just bringing more capital to, to the table as as equity and using less leverage? And does, yeah. that, does that help? I mean, obviously, it's going to reduce your returns, of course, uh, your return on equity, but... 
you're still getting out of cash, right? I mean, inflation's raging. You're still getting leverage. What do you, what do you think about that? I think it's a great plan as long as the deal makes sense. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. So we're doing two deals right now. They're about 51% loan to value, which is, that's a great situation to be in, right? They're also yeah. fully stabilized, 90, uh, high 90s occupancy. Uh, and one of them is run by quote unquote mom and pop, right? Uh, not unsophisticated, but doesn't own a lot of locations. So uh, I think it's a great, great play because if, if I'm an investor, which I am, I'm thinking through where can I put my money right now? I do get emails from Ally Bank that my, Savings rates going up, right? But it's not quite, <laughs> it's not, it's not quite enough to offset inflation. Uh, so where can I put my cash right now? The stock market's pretty rough. You know, it really depends on my horizon, what I'm looking at as far as my investment horizon, what are my goals, et cetera, all the things that a financial planner would talk to somebody about, uh, which are important. What are my risk return trade-offs? How comfortable do I feel with risk? Those are all important considerations, right? So if I feel, you know, if I'm just trying to hold on for the next three or five years, place my money where I can get at least maybe a seven, eight, you know, six, whatever percent return, and then cash out and get my principal back plus a little extra. That's probably a pretty good plan right now because the future is a bit uncertain. And hey, if you're in the stock market, I wouldn't take my money out just yet. You maybe keep it there for a little while and just kind of depends on what you're invested in. You probably have to hold on because your return, your your principal is probably diminished. It depends on, again, what you're, you're invested in. I am in uh, a couple of REITs as well, just to kind of keep pace with some of that stuff and, and keep up to date with what they're doing. So yeah, I've, I've lost money there, but it is what it is, you know? So uh, everybody's getting crushed right now. So where am I going to place my capital where at least I can preserve the principle? Uh, and I think real estate would be a great opportunity for that. I agree. And, and at 50%, I mean, it's all, we want to protect our downside, hopefully produce some ca- cash flow, protect our purchasing yeah. power. I mean, especially if we're heading into, into a recession, you know, being conservative i'd rather own modestly leveraged real property than mm-hmm. i don't know cash or some of the stocks yeah, out I there mean, or some crypto yeah. <laughs> right yeah that's right yeah like i you know yeah i'm right there with you nice well i think we're you know of the same mind there right now we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor the first step to growing your wealth is tracking your wealth income spending and everything else about your finances you can start tracking your wealth for free and Get six free months of wealth advisory with personal capital by going to escapingwallstreet.com and using our link. Create your free account today and automate the way you track your money. Personal capital is my preferred way to track my finances, and now we're making that available for listeners. Terms and conditions apply. See the personal capital website for details. Once again, to get the offer, go to escapingwallstreet.com and use our link. Back to the show. All right, Chris, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I'm ready, man. Let's do it. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? The best investment I ever made is the one I'm sitting in. Uh, It's this house. So uh, if you're watching on YouTube or wherever else, you can see the bookshelves and whatnot behind me. I'm in my office. We bought this house in May 2020, closed on it the same day we had our third son. Wow. So, uh, yeah, so it was right in the middle of 2020 was COVID time, right? So they shut down everything in, in March-ish of 2020. Uh, we had our baby in May, a little early, but he was fine. Uh, at the hospital, they sent a notary over to get out of the doc sign. <laughs> it was crazy because like, everybody's freaking out, right? We don't know. Like we're May, like some people were like, oh my gosh, we're sure. all going to die. The world's going to end. Uh, we weren't of that mindset, but it was just still very uncertain times. Uh, so my wife we, and I, we signed all this stuff. They actually snuck her in. They're like, because she was set up a table outside, May in Charlotte. It's kind of hot over here. 
So my wife is like about to give birth and they're gonna, we have to go outside and sign the doctor. This is stupid. We're not doing that. So the, the nurse like made the lady dress up in like the full like stuff, <laughs> snuck her into the room. We signed everything, got a picture, and then she left and we bought a house and we closed. So this house, uh, we bought it on the same day we closed. My son was born and it was in the middle of COVID, got a great deal on it. Uh, it shot up in value since that time. I actually thought my net worth was going to go in the toilet. And mm-hmm. I said, you know what? I knew I learned my lesson from 08, 09. If I can hold on long enough, uh, we'll be fine. So do I feel comfortable living in this house for the next five to seven years to wait for the market to come back? Because that's what I thought was going to happen, how long it would take. And I felt, yeah, that's, that's, that's okay. So that was the plan. But obviously, we did much better uh, since that time. So nice. this is the best one. Yeah. Nice. That's awesome. Did you, or did you have that under contract before the lockdown started and everything? Or when did you get under contract? Uh, no, we were actually looking during that whole like previous to that up to about a, a six or six months or a year before I remember now. Mm-hmm. But we came out to the neighborhood twice. The second time we came out, there was the first time we came out, there was nothing available. The second time we came out, uh, excuse me, I'm sorry, there was stuff available, but we just didn't like it. The second time we came out, we thought, let's go check it out again. It's maybe we missed something. Maybe we'll look at something we like it again. We like it instead, or we change our minds or whatever. And the sales guy was like, hey, we just had one come back to market. Uh, It is the former model home. And uh, the people were coming from Ohio and they canceled because of the COVID thing. They were going to buy it. It was under contract for sales to close and they canceled. Um, And so we went and took a look and walked in. If anybody knows, like with model homes, they like blow it up and they do like extra things in it. So this had all of the bells and whistles that you'd want all of the nice finishes that you can't buy. They just put it in here to make it look good or whatever. And then all the furniture came with it too. Wow. So we literally moved in with it fully furnished as a staged model home. So that's why I didn't add that part earlier. I should have. So these bookshelves were already here. The clock was already here behind <laughs> me. Like literally those things up on the, that all came with the house. Those frames with my kids, pictures of my kids were here. Uh, so with the pictures all, of the kids in them already. That's no, weird. But yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Just so, yeah. yeah. So we, uh, so it came fully furnished. I mean, so like even like the dining room out there had like bottles, of, like a stage, you know, bottles of wine and plates and dishes and all the towels in the house, everything uh, came with the house. So literally we moved here with like one small U-Haul truck, but we could have just moved in and brought our clothes. Almost like we're staying in an Airbnb, uh, but it was all ours. So that's why it was the best, uh, best home, best that's investment. That's awesome. But that yeah. you got it under contract got after it under contract, lockdowns. yes, in April. Okay. And they were doing like, okay. oh, I have a real estate license. So they gave me like a bonus because they were doing bonuses now. They were trying to sell like property. They were freaking out that they couldn't sell stuff. So yeah, so that's what happened. So I got a nice commission, extra commission bonus on it and uh, made out like a bandit, I felt like. So nice. Yeah. It's definitely interesting to think about what was going on then, especially with the benefit of hindsight. And if they, you know, just probably a couple months later, I bet that that market really oh, would have turned around. It, it did. It completely did. And nobody knew what was going to happen right in housing. Nobody could have predicted mm-hmm. that. Um, so we wor- it worked out just fine. But definitely, if we would have waited 30 to 60 days and said, you know, let's hold off a little bit, we would have missed out. Definitely. Wow. Awesome. Well, we had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? <laughs> I laugh. Uh, besides like doing some stuff in the stock market uh, and losing money, right? Investing in sure. know, different stocks or whatever. Uh, I don't focus my time there. But besides that, <clears throat> I would say one of the worst things we did was when John and I, I mentioned John, he's my co-partner on the storage team. He and I were doing deals by ourselves and I came across one. It was the smallest, it is the smallest deal in all of Charlotte. And it's about 2,500 square feet, 
self-storage. So <laughs> it's about 22 units, they're all 10 by 10s, in uh, an office there. Uh, but it was on about an acre of land. And so the rest of it was all grass. And so you could do stuff with that acreage. So like, hey, you know what? This is the little deal. It's fine. Let's go ahead and put it in a contract and go with it. I had been working on that. I actually called the guy when I first moved back here. It took about two years for him to come around wanting to sell. Uh, then we put it in a contract. And then we went through a whole thing with uh, an easement issue. He wanted water access because he owned another piece of land somewhere else, like one, two properties over, two parcels over. He wanted water access from the storage to that. He wanted an easement for that. He gave us the runaround on a couple other things. Uh, we almost had to sue him for something called specific performance to actually mm. force him to sell us the property because he said, hey, how much can I, money can I give you guys just to go away? Uh, we had already completed our due diligence. We had spent money on title. We had spent money on the attorney. We had spent you know, several thousand dollars uh, trying to get this deal to close and get it done. It, it was just this mess. And so every single phone call would be about an 30 minutes to an hour call for something extremely simple. Uh, so it was the massive waste of time. So time, energy, and money lost on that deal. In the end, we said, forget it. It's not worth uh, trying to get this thing closed or, or, or lawsuit or anything like that. Let's just walk away. So we lost several thousand dollars on that one. But it was a lesson in that not every mom and pop opportunity is an opportunity. And you have to really kind of gauge and see, is this person actually a true seller? You know, are they giving you the runaround on certain things? Uh, are they being cooperative? Like all those things. Do they have an attorney? This guy did not have an attorney. And so now from now on, like I don't just like if the seller does not have an attorney, that's a major red flag to me because it's gonna, they're gonna there's gonna be issues down the road, most likely. Um, so I would say that it was it was just a massive waste of time, money, and energy. And then the lessons I learned from that were Again, when you're dealing with mom and pops, you got to have your guard up a little bit here. You got to make sure and do your due diligence and make sure everything is, is, is straight, right? That they're not telling you something that's not true. Uh, and then do they have an attorney? Because if they do, they're most likely like, yes, we're going to sell this thing. I need an attorney to help me walk through the process. If they don't, to me, that's a cautionary thing of, okay, are they actually really going to sell? And what problems are they going to cause down the road? Because they have no one explaining things to them that represents their best interests. Uh, it's really hard hearing it come from the buyer, the guy on the opposite side of the table. Even though he might be telling you the truth, there's always going to be some some little bit of doubt that's going to cause an issue uh, in what you're telling them. So yeah, that was the worst. That was the worst uh, deal ever done. Wow. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? Uh, that it's okay to change your mind. There's nothing wrong with that. With new information, you can make a new decision and change your mind. I think one of the hardest things for people to do is once they have a mindset or an opinion, not a mindset, I should say an opinion about something, we tend to stick to it because that's the way our mind works. Psychologically, we like to have kind of a construct that makes us feel comfortable. We would rather be there than feel uncomfortable. So if somebody brings new information to the table, we don't often want to change our minds because it puts us in an awkward, uncomfortable situation. We might have to admit we were wrong or we didn't know that or whatever the case may be. So I think one of the hardest things to do in business is change your mind about something uh, based upon new information, but we should do that. Uh, whether it be investing in something or whether it be buying a house, or whether it be 
you know, you talking to your kids and you didn't realize something or, and they tell you something, oh, shoot, okay, I was wrong. Sorry about that. And just being able to say that, uh, I think it's really hard for a lot of people to do. So that's, I would say, is one of the big, biggest pieces of advice and lessons I've learned over time. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a great conversation, both the recorded and the non-recorded portion that we uh, discussed here. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to learn more about what you're up to or anything like that, where can they track you down? They can always catch me on uh, LinkedIn. Uh, just Google or search on LinkedIn, Chris, K-R-S, Chris Bennett. Uh, and then on Facebook as well, same thing. Uh, happy to connect over there. Great. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcast. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.